Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, October 22nd, 2012. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. The Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the City of Salem, proud hosts of Stag Bowl 40. Tickets for this year's Stag Bowl are on sale now. Just go to www.salemciviccenter.com for more information, and we'll see you in Salem. And we finally got, I don't know, did we get what we expected? I, I think that uh, with, with, for example, well, of course, we're talking about uh, University of Wisconsin Oshkosh beating Wisconsin Whitewater on Saturday as uh, number 10 takes down number 5. Uh, Keith, I thought that, you know, First of all, the most interesting thing that happened during the game uh, was how Oshkosh's, uh, you know, Oshkosh jumps out to this big lead, and then Whitewater changes quarterbacks, and Matt Barrett, the guy who's you know been uh, riding the bench most of the year, comes in and gives a uh, a really impressive performance, gives Whitewater a credible passing game, nearly gets them back into the football game before uh, Oshkosh takes control a little bit again on defense and and goes away for the victory. Yeah, he came in, completed 12 of his first 13 passes, and uh, really showed, I thought, how desperate or maybe how, how crucial a point in the season it was for, for the Warhawks because they'd been giving Lee Brecky pretty much you know as much leash as you can give a guy, uh, trusting him through this and letting the defense, which the Warhawks defense really had been playing actually great all season, uh, didn't look so great in the first half. Uh, against Oshkosh, but you know, had been had been letting Brecky sort of work through his issues, and, and thought that maybe at some point in the middle of the season he would start to to play really well, and, and then the offense could begin to carry the defense a little bit on that team, and it, and it wasn't happening. And when they fell behind early against the Titans, they made the change, and the change really turned things around. And, and I think part of it was probably uh, Brent playing playing really well, but part of it's probably uh, also when you see your team make that move you know it, every, it it clicks for everybody how serious this is and uh it, it was it was a it's a real big point in the season uh for whitewater and it turned out to be um you know not quite the it was a spark for them but it but it didn't push them over the edge and now i think they're on the uh the, the outside looking in as far as the playoffs are concerned which is really an unprecedented situation in, in division three to have the, the defending champion uh be on shaky ground yeah, and we will talk more about that. Uh, I talked about the most interesting thing that happened on the field. This is definitely the most interesting, th- interesting thing that's happening off the field this week. But uh, I want to talk about uh, Nate Ware, the quarterback for Wisconsin Oshkosh. It's a guy who was on our uh, preseason All-America team. Uh, I'd seen him play a couple times over the previous couple years, and one of the things that impressed me the most previously about him was his running ability. But as we've mentioned before, uh, and certainly people who have followed Whitewater and the, the Division Three national scene over the past couple of seasons in the playoffs remember that, you know, Whitewater doesn't give up a whole lot of yards on the ground. And Wera was still, you know, nonetheless able to be successful even when uh, the ground game wasn't there for him. Yeah, and, you know, the thing that's I- impressive about him, he, he is a, a runner, but I thought he threw the ball really well on, on Saturday in some key situations. There was, a you know, the, the first touchdown in that game, um, I believe it was the first touchdown, but it was a, you know, a fade right into the corner of the end zone, just thrown to the perfect spot, you know, too far from the defense, but right where his receiver could run under it. Then there was another touchdown uh, late in the half in the second quarter when he, when he hooked up with uh, Whipperfirth was, was a ball that was thrown also to the end zone, but thrown along the sideline to where uh, either Whipperfirth is going to catch it and, and get his two feet or get one of his feet down inbounds, uh, for a touchdown or the ball is going to sail out of bounds and be incomplete but he never gave the the Warhawks defensive backs a a chance to uh, to make a play on those balls and those are both ended up being touchdown passes uh, the first one was the uh, was the touchdown pass to Caleb Voss um, you know that's a thing that you see from an experienced quarterback from a guy who has touch on the ball and and I think that's something that makes Oshkosh really dangerous down the line because uh you know, we knew, we know he he's a running threat, and we know with this offense that they run, which is really uh, unique. It'll be unique to playoff teams. They'll you know it's, it relies on um, you know uh, interesting formations, I guess you might say, and a lot of motion. And um, you know, when teams see that for the first time in the playoffs, it'll throw them off. You know, it, I'm I'm now assuming Oshkosh is going to make the playoffs, right? Which is uh, something we should also talk about. I, I'm, I'm I'm thinking that's a safe assumption, but uh, it, it really makes um, where uh, I think 
one of the toughest players in the country to defend. And I don't know, you know, somebody asked me, somebody who's sort of a casual D3 follower asked me, you know, if we have a leader for the Gallardi Trophy. And I kind of was like, eh, you know, it's not one of those years where we have a dominant guy. And then I thought about it and I'm like, you know, Saturday was maybe the day that all eyes were on Nate Wera and, and he responded. I think we might have seen another Gallardi candidate uh, play on Saturday and play well on Saturday as well, but he's a sophomore and we will talk more about him later in the podcast and, you know, presumably over the course of the next couple of years as well. Here's the interesting thing for Oshkosh. You remember last year, of course, uh, they played this uh, nail-biter down-to-the-wire game against Whitewater. Uh, they seemed to still be in good position for a playoff bid at that point, even though they had two overall losses uh, because they had come to Mount Union and Whitewater. And then they come back the next week and they lay an egg against Lacrosse. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Oshkosh goes uh, basically all the way across the state to play at Lacrosse on Saturday. They have three games left against Lacrosse, Stevens Point, and Stout, who are uh, three and four, one and six, and three and four. You know, these are the three tapes that playoff opponents are going to get. Now, obviously, you know, if you're out there, if you're a coach, you know, you're probably in a position where you're you're scouting and you're recording and trying to get any your hands on any footage you can now while you can, uh, because you know, you're allowed to trade footage with anybody who's willing to trade with you. Once the playoff field is set, you know, you're not allowed to, uh, you're, you're, people are not allowed to give up that footage of playoff teams. But my point being is that it's certainly possible that Oshkosh could go these next three weeks with, you know, kind of the bottom half of the conference and dial back the playbook a little bit and try to look as vanilla as possible on tape. I think the one reason, um, you know, that they may not, be so willing to do that this week is the fact that lacrosse beat them last year. Yeah, and and the fact that they had that that point last year where they uh, still had the playoffs within reach and they laid an egg, as you so eloquently put it. Thank you. Uh, at this point, they're seven and zero, and they're now moved into the top six in, in our top twenty-five poll. But that's a program that hasn't had a lot of success, and so they they've got to keep it rolling. You know, this is a team that right now. Um, could be the number one seed in the West. There's going to be a lot of competition for for that, and technically, it's not a West bracket. So they, they they Oshkosh could be a number one seed. St. Thomas could be a number one seed. Um, Linfield could be a number one seed. Mount Union could be a number one seed. You know, and it, it, I think there would probably have to be a, a, a Southern team in there as well. But um, you know, maybe maybe out of St. Thomas, Oshkosh, and Linfield, two of those teams could be. Uh, number one seeds in their bracket. So uh, there's still a lot le left to play for for Oshkosh. And I think dialing back the playbook is something you do if you're Mount Union or if you're Whitewater and you're familiar with the playoffs, you're expecting to get there and you know off top that that um, teams don't get the, the – the, you only get the past three games uh, as far as passing out video footage. I don't know if Oshkosh uh, goes to that length because this is a team that uh, a program that hasn't had a lot of success, and I think they want to finish the season up strong. Obviously, they need to secure the automatic bid first, um, but they're they're playing for a a uh, number one seed potentially as well. Okay, so what is Whitewater playing for? Whitewater is in the situation where they have two overall losses, two Division three losses, only one of them in region, and it's kind of a it's kind of a mixed bag from year to year how much how much that's important whether it's uh you know whether it is so purely by regional record that whitewater would be viewed as a one loss team or whether whitewater would be viewed as a two loss team here's uh you know i think my take on it is if whitewater is close if whitewater is you know in a position where you know they are uh close to somebody else in in terms of getting into one of those final uh at large spots i think they probably get in however Right now, they really are not close, and the numbers do not look good for them, and the numbers aren't going to get better. No, in terms of who they're playing. Pat, we talk so much about the criteria, and only a very select group of people probably actually take the time to pull out the handbook and, and read the criteria. And there's primary criteria and secondary criteria, and this is really only, uh, it's only in use for selecting the seven at-large teams uh, and the, the Pool B team. And then it also helps seed teams decide who goes on the road and that sort of thing. Right at the top of the list, you know, and, and again, the criteria, the primary criteria is not in order, but the very first thing on the list is win-loss percentage against regional opponents. And I believe that's in there because D3 wants teams, you know, to manage their travel budgets, to try to play 
uh, like opponents within a reasonable distance from each other. But because Whitewater is a three-time champion, they had a tough time getting games. You know, For many years, they weren't even able to play all D3 opponents. So Buff State was willing to come all the way out from New York to Wisconsin and play them. And Whitewater was glad to take a D3 game and, um, and, and play out a region opponent. And in a sense, it was almost a game without risk for them if the committee was to go strictly by what it says here on the criteria, win-loss percentage against regional opponents. But as with all the criteria, it's open to interpretation how important that is when you look at the rest of the picture. And yeah. some, of the other, some of the other criteria is strength of schedule, in-region head-to-head competition, in-region results versus common opponents, in-region results versus regionally ranked teams. And um, I guess those are really the, the, you know, the main ones. Yeah, my point being is that uh, in, in, in all of the sports, in all the sports that we cover at D3Sports.com, baseball, basketball, football, soccer, um, we have been told that when you get to the bottom of Pool C, when you get to those final at-large spots, that it seems like just about any criteria is on the table. Uh, anything is a possibility. Um, you know, anything that's on the list, whether it's in the primary or the secondary criteria. But i got to say this too, Keith especially in football when you only have 9 or 10 games there's you know you can't make a reasonable or a complete decision without using every data point available and and the the th- the thought that you know division 3 has arbitrarily ignored uh you know up to 30% perhaps of a team's uh of a team's schedule if not more if you're someone like Wesley is is just you know to me I can say asinine, right? No, this is my uh, this is my side. I'm gonna say asinine. Uh, to be honest with you, it's just it doesn't make any sense to me. And so the fact that you know football has said in recent years, you know that we're gonna try to expand the number of data points that we're allowed to look at by the NCAA, uh, I, I think suggests to me that the Buff State game is in. And I would say then too, if the Buff State game is in and Whitewater is on the board with say St. John Fisher or Alfred. You know, teams that uh, teams that have a a common opponent there in Buff State, Whitewater's in even more trouble. Yeah, you're right because that is a data point you have to evaluate. And if uh, St. John Fisher and Alfred have beaten Buffalo State, uh, who's now a member of the Empire Eight, and and Whitewater has that loss, there, there's no justifiable way that that they'll be able to say, you know, Whitewater can't get in over those teams. Now, we're we're speculating out a little bit. We're speculating sure. that that Whitewater finishes strong, and that there are a handful of teams who also finish strong. And from the the two loss group, Pat, right now there's about thirty or, or so teams, maybe forty, uh, in, in the country who have two losses, and they're not all necessarily going to be uh, fringe candidates. You know, right now there's there's um, you know, fifteen undefeated teams. So a lot of those those teams are going to win their automatic bid. There's twenty six teams that are one loss teams. Some of those will be in Pool C. Some of those will be Pool A. Automatic bid teams. But it, it really, you know, with just seven bids, most of the the at large teams probably going to be one loss teams. But if the one loss pool, you know, if things fall break a certain way, and, and this has happened, uh, 2008 happened, and last year St. John Fisher was the one of the last teams in. They had two losses. They were an at large. Um, if the two lost teams come on the board, there, there's a couple teams that you mentioned, Pat. The two from uh, the Empire Eight, I think Louisiana College. You probably have to consider because they're coming from a strong conference uh, in the American Southwest, and. Uh, if they, they beat Harden-Simmons and finish out their season 8-2 and two with a loss to Mary Harden-Baylor and Wesley, uh, two teams that are, that are right in the, in the you know, top of the rankings. And I know our rankings are not playoff criteria, but uh, the numbers, the, the strength of schedule numbers will, will strongly favor uh, Louisiana College. And I think Pacific Lutheran right now is another one. After the win on Saturday against Willamette, that's a, that's another team that we'll have to keep an eye on because they're going to have a strong strength of schedule number. The losses are to Cal Lutheran and to Linfield. Both of those teams are uh, are top ten teams currently, and uh, you know probably going to finish finish out winning their conferences. And so the strength of schedule number right now, I think for Pacific Lutheran is they were the number two, um, you know SOS number in the country, and uh, which means if they're one of the two lost teams on the board, they're not going to have a common opponent with Whitewater, but I don't see how you can overlook Pacific Lutheran at seven and two, Louisiana College at eight and two, and Whitewater at eight and two, uh, unless 
there's a major difference in uh, in you know results against regionally ranked teams, which I don't know if Whitewater is going to have unless Platteville uh, is ranked as well. And then um, the only other thing really is is your uh, your strength of schedule number or ignoring the the non-region game. And so here's a couple of things. One, you know, Keith mentioned, uh, for those of you out there, Keith mentioned strong conferences. The strength of a conference itself is not a criteria, but where a strength of a conference uh, manifests itself is in uh, a team's SOS. So Keith mentioned that Pacific Lutheran at the moment, by our calculations, has a 700 SOS, and, and Linfield actually is number one right now at 722. Uh, that'll come down a little bit because Linfield has yet to play both Pacific and Puget Sound, and those teams will drag that number down, but uh, they also have yet to play Willamette, and that'll help uh, uh, steady those numbers a little bit. Um, the thing about uh, UW-Whitewater strength of schedule right now is it is at flat 500, uh, 500 strength of schedule. And unfortunately, if you're a Warhawk fan, it's not looking to get much better. Uh, here's the teams they have left. They have uh, Wisconsin Lacrosse, who's 3-3 three and three in region right now. Uh, Wisconsin-Stevens Point, who's 1-5. and five. And remember, this is the second uh, Wisconsin-Stevens Point game. Uh, Whitewater's already beaten them once, and the WIAC conference office makes uh, one uh, makes every team schedule an extra conference game, and that's who Whitewater got this year. And uh, Eau Claire is three and four. Uh, you know, everything else is going to balance out because everybody in the WIAC uh, is is playing each other right now. The only place where um, where Whitewater has a chance to gain anything is if somehow um, if Wash U. Uh, it finishes the season strong. WashU is two and five. They are zero and three in region, but they do have three regional games to end the season. So if they knock off a couple of those teams, if they manage to beat Case in Chicago or you know some combination between them and Carnegie Mellon, they could help that number out a little bit. But that's a small boost at this point, and they're going to be really close to 500. And you you mentioned all those teams with two losses, Keith. There's a whole, of course, there will be a whole bunch of teams with one loss. And if history proves, uh, you know, if history repeats itself. There's seven spots. We're probably talking about at the end of the at the end of the season, eight or nine one-loss Pool C candidates to choose from. And, and last year was the first time in a while that a pool t uh, that a two-loss at-large team was chosen over an available one-loss team, and that was St. John Fisher getting taken over both Case Western Reserve and Endicott. Yeah, you're right because that in that uh, what happened in 2008 when when Wheaton got in uh, was you know sort of carnage as I like to call it in week 11. So all all the one loss teams uh, that were available in Pool C they all lost and that brought Wheaton, which really started the day not thinking it had a chance, brought them onto the board back in 2008. And so that really leads to this very succinct point for Whitewater: all hope is not lost. You got to win your final three games, finish eight and two. And you also got to get some help, uh, either either help from the way the committee interprets the criteria or uh, more likely and more honestly, probably some help from some teams losing some games that we didn't expect them to lose. You know, Louisiana College still has to play hard in Simmons. Pacific Lutheran is not through the, the, the gauntlet yet in the um, in the Northwest Conference. You know, Empire 8, St. John Fisher and Alfred. Uh, you know, tough games left. So it, all hope's not lost, but it does not look good as of today for the uh, for the defending champions to be a playoff team. Ironically, uh, you know, if if Matt Barron continues to play as he did it during the third quarter this past week, you know, Whitewater could end up at the end of the season being a legitimate Stag Bowl candidate just by the way that they uh, might play these last three games and yet might not get into the field. And the last time we had a defending champion that did not qualify for the playoffs the following year was in 2004 when 2003 champion St. John's uh, finished 7-3. and three. Remember, they were, at 7-3, and three, they were not on the bubble. They were clearly not a playoff team, and we have not been in this situation in uh, Division Three football with the defending national champion being potentially on the bubble since uh, this playoff expanded out of the 16-team uh, realm back at the uh, beginning of the 1999 season. So that's the big story of the week. Uh, is there anything else we want to talk about, or are we done here? No, I think let's, let's move on. So we've got uh, a bunch of other games that uh, that were that were uh, some pretty interesting ones over the course of the uh, over the course of the weekend. I want to talk about one of the ones that happened uh, at night. We had two. Um, you know, two pretty interesting, uh, potentially interesting games that happened in the CCIW, and one of them turned really interesting in the, as uh, Wheaton rallied to beat Illinois Wesleyan. 
Yeah, and, and what was you know strange about that game is Illinois Wesleyan controlled pretty much the entire game and uh, got the ball back at a point in the game where you feel like they could begin to salt it away. They uh, Wheaton misses a field goal, and Illinois Wesleyan is sitting on a nine-point lead, 33-24, and uh, gets the ball back. And kind of a peculiar call on third down. I believe it was third and 12, and uh, they chose to throw the ball, which, uh, you know, a lot of times in that situation, you run a draw, run a screen, something safe, but also has the potential to get the 12 yards. Uh, they chose to pass it. Quarterback scrambles around a little bit and uh, really kind of just ill-advised throw. Wheaton intercepts it, scores real quickly, and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, you're there. this is in the last seven minutes now of the game. The stadium comes to life. The team's been trailing all day. Uh, Wheaton gets a ball back, scores again. Two um, great touchdown catches. Both of these are great catches by, uh, by Mark Hibben, who's, uh, you know, a guy who's opening a lot of eyes in the CCIW. Uh, those, so so he has two great catches late in that game, and then Illinois Wesleyan uh, ends up losing its its starting quarterback to a freak injury on the final drive, and uh, the freshman comes in, throws an interception, Wheaton seals the game, and uh, kind of steals that one uh, by scoring two touchdowns in the last four and a half minutes to win 38-33, and that takes uh, Illinois Wesleyan, you know, not just out of the group of undefeated teams and the teams that were in line for a, a Pool A bid, but you know, maybe drops them all the way out of the group of, of teams in, in Pool C because it, right now, at this point, it's such a competitive group of one-loss teams. And we talked about uh, Illinois Wesleyan uh, on the podcast last week, reminding people that they had basically their three toughest games uh, still out in front of them. They have to go to North Central next week. Uh, they have to travel to Elmhurst in the final week of the season. Um, and, of course, you mentioned Mark Hibben. That's the guy who I was uh, obliquely referring to earlier as a potential future Gallardi candidate, uh, candidate as, a, uh, as a sophomore, maybe not necessarily a, a, a realistic uh you know, threat to win the trophy right now, but you know it's a guy who's obviously got a lot of talent. I saw him play in the uh, in the opening weekend of the season against Benedictine, and you know I had been I had been told to watch out for this guy, and you know obviously he was uh, he was impressive that night as well. Seven catches for 72 yards and a couple of touchdowns, but you know it's a guy who's really coming into his own, and he's he's kind of a, he's kind of a physical specimen for Division Three. Yeah, and and you can see it in the way he plays. You know. Um, one of the touchdown catches in the fourth quarter was kind of the ill-advised throw. Jordan Roberts throws into triple coverage, uh, but Hibben, uh, just weird. You know, he goes into the pile of three guys, it comes out with the ball and crosses the goal line. And it, you, can, you can watch it as many times as you want, and hopefully it'll be nominated for Play of the Week this week, and we'll all see it on that reel. I believe it uh, will be. Yes, it, it, it's one of those catches where you're just like, you know, really Did that just happened, and uh, because the, the, the Illinois Wesleyan couldn't have defended it any better, and uh, Hibben is just, you know, just goes up and and, and you know rips the ball down, right? You know, the, you see receivers, uh, some guys, sometimes guys too, with the, with great bodies for for it, but don't have the knack to go get the ball. And uh, Hibben, both of his catches in the fourth quarter were really great catches where he went up and got it. Uh, you know, the tough thing for for the Titans was. We, we were saying, Pat, you mentioned they, they hadn't played their tough opponents yet. And so this was the first test for them to really see how, how they would perform against a team quality of Wheaton. And they, they played well enough to win for, for the first 53 minutes of the game. And uh, it's got to be frustrating for, for Illinois Wesleyan and their fans because this was, the, this was their night to prove something. And for most of the game, they, they are proving it. And uh, proven that they're worth being in the top 25. They're they're uh, you know a CCIW championship contender, a playoff you know possibility, and then uh, it really just all gets away from them in the final seven minutes. Yeah, and you know, and it, it doesn't look any easier as we mentioned because of the schedule, but also because uh, with the the status of Gallic's injury, and of course uh, we don't know uh, for certain the way it looks, but it doesn't look promising. Um, you know they're going to be really behind the eight ball as the uh, as the season progresses here in the final th final three weeks. Yeah, Rob Gallick um, was was scrambling on the final drive. Uh, Illinois Wesleyan got in the midfield and um, you're trailing by five, so they they have it. You know, the field goal does them no good, but they have a chance. You know, in, in the final minute, I think it was about forty seconds when the when the play took place. Uh, he was scrambling, nobody was around him, and he just crumpled. You know, it, it almost. You know, if he hadn't gotten hurt on the plate, somebody would make a joke and say the old turf monster got him. But he he, he just uh, 
I don't know if it, what what the diagnosis ended up being with his knee, but it it was pretty clear from the broadcast that uh, that his knee gave out. And uh, so Tyler Hook comes in, and, and Illinois Wesleyan still has a, a shot at this point, and and. Hook uh, just went deep and uh, got intercepted, and that that wrapped up the game. But it was tough because it was even for Illinois Wesleyan had this has this um, even though they'd blown the lead, they had a chance to to drive down and, and still pull the game out. And uh, when they lost, Gallic sort of all air went out of their balloon. This kind of opens up uh, one of your darling programs for this year uh, in terms of Elmers for them to have a shot at a pool B bid, a pool C bid if they uh, if they win out. They've played. Uh, you know, they've played Wheaton and they've played North Central, and they split against those two. Uh, they have uh, North Park at home this week. They go to Carthage, and then they host Illinois Wesley in the final week with a possibility of going 9-1. and one. Yeah, and, and there's a chance uh, that, that Illinois Wesleyan will still be in contention at that point, or that Illinois Wesleyan will be playing spoiler for Elmhurst. I, I think right now, even in the CCIW, you still have four teams that have a shot at a playoff bid. Wheaton is, is the last of those four because Wheaton is 5-2 and two right now and, and has losses to both uh, Elmhurst and, uh, and who's the first Wheaton loss to? Why am well, I drawing? The Albion. All right, that's right. So they have a they have a non-conference loss. So they're in they're in contention if uh, uh, they'll have to win the little brass bell game and beat um, North Central. But th- they may be in contention for the conference uh, title. Elmhurst, as you mentioned, uh, already with the loss to North Central, is pr- is probably in good shape for a Pool B bid if it can win its final three games. And right now, North Central, even with uh, with having a, a non-conference loss. Back in week one, North Central's in control right now in the CCIW, but uh, but they still have to finish uh, finish the rest of the season out. I wanted to talk about the MIAC for a little bit, uh, and I wanted to talk about Concordia Moorhead, which defeated Augsburg to uh, remain with one loss. Concordia Moorhead still has St. Thomas in front of it. Uh, you know, Bethel is in a position where you know they have most of the uh, they have the the real strong contenders in the conference out of the way and they are trying to finish out and finish uh with one loss and try to get themselves in that large bid or hoping that uh you know Concordia Moorhead defeats St. Thomas this week but anyway regardless you know we've talked about the the strength of this conference this year and how successful they've been because of you know just their their strength of schedule number is going to be great because they've lost so few non-conference games and especially uh, a few in conference games against uh, or non-conference games against Division three opponents, but um, I like what uh, I like how Concordia Moorhead has has come out and battled here. Obviously, playing uh, playing Hamlin last week um, is is kind of a foregone conclusion over the last couple of years. But to to battle back and and to hold on against Augsburg, a team that charged really hard at the end, uh, I thought showed some heart considering they could have packed it in after the way the Bethel game ended. Yeah, and and. What a team has to do in that situation, you know, when you have that heartbreaking loss, is, is to keep your keep its mind on the big picture. And the big picture for Concordia Moorhead um, is the playoffs. They still have a chance, and really have a chance to uh, to to win the conference still. But they have to beat St. Thomas. And while St. Thomas is certainly the prohibitive favorite, you know, if you consider your program a playoff program, you're going to have to beat a team like that at some point down the road anyway. So. There's no complaining really at this point for Concordia Moorhead. I, I think they have the the chance in front of them right now to uh, to to um, beat St. Thomas and uh, and make that Mayak really a, a real crazy crazy finish. You know, last week or two weeks ago maybe we talked about the Mayak having five teams in the mix and they're slowly starting to pick each other off. Uh, but with with uh, Concordia Moorhead uh, going out to that 38-7 lead and hanging on to beat Augsburg. That, that handed uh, the Augies their second loss. St. Olaf now has two losses in the conference. And so you've got Bethel and Concordia Moorhead. They've already played. Uh, you know, Bethel obviously won that, that um, the one-point game with the, the crazy finish. They have the common opponent. But Concordia Moorhead uh, still has to play St. Thomas. And, uh, and St. Thomas still also has to play Augsburg and, uh, and St. Olaf. So even though St. Thomas... Uh, smash Bethel, and you think, well, if they beat Bethel like that, they're, they're pretty good. You know, they'll be pretty good uh, these last three games. They still have to, you know, finish out against three of the toughest teams in the conference. And I don't know if it's necessarily a f- foregone conclusion that the Tommies will finish ten and zero. Let's talk about uh, Hobart for a little bit. Uh, Hobart, you remember last year they dropped that game late in the season to RPI. They kind of took themselves out of the running for a potential number one seed if an East Region team was going to get a number one. Uh, this year they go to RPI and 
well, this is a phrase that's been used a lot over the last decade, but they, uh, they proceeded to leave no doubt. <laughs> yeah, and, and when you lose to a team the year before, you know, in a, in, a, in a tough way, that's what you do when you leave no doubt. You know, you, you make sure the game is not up for grabs in the last seven minutes. Uh, for example, and and Hobart really didn't. In fact, when I uh, tuned into the game, it was 21-7, and I watched it for about five minutes, and I saw Hobart touchdown drive, uh, quick interception of of Mike Herman of RPI, and then another Hobart touchdown that looked almost exactly like the previous one. It was uh, Bobby Bobby Doherty, the uh, running back for them. He had one run, you know, right through the middle, untouched. And then the other one, you know, the second one, uh, right through the middle, same place, same spot on the field, same end zone. Uh, he got touched uh, on the second one, but uh, but still ran through the tackle and scored. And uh, I don't know if I was more impressed um, with that, with Hobart having a little bit of offense. And again, it's hard to judge a team from only watching five or ten minutes of a game. But uh, I was impressed with their offense, and I was expecting expecting to come away impressed with the Hobart defense. And, and that's not to say the Statesmen um, haven't impressed on defense. You know, they've only given up more than one score to two of the seven teams they've played so far. Um, but, but I came away overall very impressed with Hobart. I moved them up a couple spots on my ballot this week uh, just from watching that game. And I think people are a little quick to assume that um, Mountain Union would be the quote-unquote East number one uh, in a playoff situation because there's so much strength uh, in in the North and West. I think if Hobart finishes uh, undefeated and they actually have 10 games this year and uh, would finish 10-0 and, and, and they haven't played the strongest schedule, but they've, they've done what you have to do against a not strong schedule, which is dominate. You win every game by, by multiple scores. Uh, the closest game they've had is, is three touchdowns, whether it's one of their two 28-7 wins or the uh, 42-21 win. You know, they've, they've dominated every opponent, and so I don't, I don't think we can count them out for a uh, number one seed in the East. Hobart's strength of schedule right now is sitting at uh, 559. Looking at what they have left, they have Union, uh, they have St. Lawrence, and they have Rochester, so the strength of schedule will probably drop a little bit, but it'll still say, say, stay at least significantly above 500, uh, so that'll be a... a that'll be some help for them. Yeah, really what happens in the East is far more dependent, I think, on what happens elsewhere. If we do end up taking, for example, two West region teams as number one, say, you know, say Linfield continues to have and finishes the season with the top strength of schedule in all of Division Three football, it'll be really hard to not give them a top seed. Um, and, you know, say Oshkosh or maybe St. Thomas, probably Oshkosh geographically makes more sense as a top seed. And then you end up with, uh, you know, maybe Mary Harden Baylor wins out, and then you still have, you know, we still haven't even talked about Mount Union as one of those four spots. It could come down to someone like uh, something like Oshkosh or Hobart if they both uh, end up winning out. And, and you know what else, Pat? Too, if people do, if if the committee does decide that, you know, say Linfield and St. Thomas finish a strong, or Linfield and Oshkosh and Mary Harden Baylor and Mount Union are the four number one seeds. It's not the worst thing in the world for Hobart or Johns Hopkins, uh, who who may also finish ten and zero in the East, to be a number two seed in a bracket with Mount Union. Because again, if you're in the playoffs, you're going to have to beat a team like Mount Union at some point anyway. Uh, and if you're number two, uh, you know, for a team like Hobart that got sent on the road last year in the first round to Wesley, you know, just having a first round home game it would be something to be. Uh, happy about and then if you're the two seed in a bracket with Mountain Union you, you wouldn't play them till the third week anyway so uh, you'd have a chance to prove yourself uh, against a couple pretty good teams and get a full playoff experience which is really um, when the committee is dealing with more than than four undefeated no-brainer type of teams for, for number one seed somebody's gonna have to get a number two and, and you can't really complain about it and, and you know just as a reminder the, to a couple of things to people who are new to this um, you know the no longer uh, and it, this went out the door after the 98 season uh, no longer do we have you know brackets strictly broken down by geography they tend to uh, you know rather than slot people into their you know their defined region the east north north south or west you know they they group them more by where they actually fall on the map and the way division three's map is driven is drawn up because so many schools are you know 
north of the 36th parallel, shall we say, and east of the Mississippi River, um, you know, there's this there's this real big clump of teams in certain parts of the country. Uh, for example, you know, Keith mentioned Johns Hopkins in the east, and he's not talking about Johns Hopkins as being an east region team, but as being a team in the eastern half of the country or someone who could potentially anchor a uh, bracket of eight teams in that uh, in that part of uh, in that part of the map, and, and that's uh, that's far more important than you know whether you are uh, listed by the committee as being an east, north, south, or west region team. So those are things to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is we talk about seeds. Often the seeds are fairly obvious, but over the course of the past few years, the NCAA has refused to acknowledge the fact that they have seeded this bracket and they've put numbers on it for decades. And over the course of the last couple of years, they have stopped doing that. But, you know, to be honest with you, being a two seed still means what it means. Uh, you know, you play, a, you play a team that's near the bottom of the bracket in the first round. You should have two home games uh, if you uh, if you file the paperwork correctly and your stadium is good enough, that sort of thing. Uh, so so those are things to keep in mind as, as this goes on. Uh, Keith, you mentioned Johns Hopkins, and we don't really talk about uh, Friday night games so much because there's so much that happens on Saturday. There were two really interesting games on Friday night, and, and we'll start with Johns Hopkins, although I think the more interesting game is the other one. Yeah, Pat, the, uh, the Friday night game, at Johns Hopkins, delayed a little bit by weather, and uh, Hopkins ended up having another one of these great games on the ground. They rushed for 372 yards, uh, 6.3 yards per carry, and really what's been impressive about them this season as they've, they've had their way with pretty much the entire Centennial Conference and, and uh, Randolph-Macon also in the, uh, the first game of the season is they've been a, a team that's guided by its offensive line. And uh, and really, its defensive line was was quick, and its offensive line ha- has you know paved the way for for these big rushing numbers. And that's not something that we see very often out of teams from the Centennial Conference or other sort of you know small liberal arts college conferences. You see that sometimes from the WIAC or from the American Southwest. And uh, Hopkins right now is looking every bit as as legit as. Um, you know, any of these other undefeated teams right now. And, you know, sometimes teams float up the rankings just because they haven't been beaten. But I think Hopkins is is winning every game impressively and uh, deserves to be in the top 15, creeping up towards the top 10. Yeah, you talked about uh, I the one of the things I think has been the knock on on that league in the past is that they just haven't been they haven't been physical enough. But you talked about the size of the lines, you know, to be honest with you, I thought they were I thought they were big all over. I, I you know, was watching um you know, w- was watching some of these uh, some of these highlights, and they have a you know a receiver out there who's pretty big as well. There's a, there's some actual size. They look more like a, a power division three football team just physically than than they have, and maybe that uh, you know Centennial Conference teams in general have over the past decade or so. And, and on Friday, this was a big test for the, the Blue Jays because uh, Gettysburg is high powered offense, and uh, you know there there are a couple of good teams right now this season. Maybe maybe. Centennial's four solid teams deep when you add Franklin and Marshall and Muhlenberg in there. And uh, this was a big test for for Hopkins. Um, And it was back and forth, you know, uh, halftime, 21 all, 28 all at one point in the game, 35 all. And then Hopkins is is, um, protecting a, uh, well, at at 35 all, you know, they they had a big 63-yard touchdown run by Jonathan Rigaud. And then you know, protecting that seven-point lead, they put together a 12-play drive and then uh, scored another touchdown uh, on any on a um, fumble return when Gettysburg was trying to rally and ended up uh, making it a two-score margin. But it was actually a pretty tight game for them, and it's the type of test that uh, the Hopkins needs to pass if it's going to be able to deal with the type of teams it's going to see in the playoffs. Right, because Gettysburg has certainly put up a, a ton of points this year. Some of them, obviously, against uh, you know some of the weaker teams in division three or especially you know the 70 to nothing in the opening game of the season which was the opening game for misericordia but they continued to put points on the board every week and they put you know 35 points up on the board this week but uh you know johns hopkins obviously able to uh, surpass that yeah and and able to match it and i think that's what you get when when you you get in the first round you get into the second round you're going to play a team that's equally talented to you maybe can match you in size or match you in speed and that's when you have to beat them with you know smarts you have to beat them with fortitude and uh, you have to beat them with good coaching and right now uh, Johns Hopkins is showing all three of those things which is surprising because 
I thought at the beginning of the season they were they were a ten and zero team that lost you know some key parts, and uh, really they've been better this season than they were last season. Well, and you saw that playoff game last year, and not to backtrack too much into 2011, but did you think they got out physical against St. John Fisher in that opening round yeah. game? That was the big, you know, the big knock on them is that, you know, a team from the Empire Eight came down to uh, to Baltimore and was able to push a team from the Centennial Conference around. And, and I don't see that happening again this year. And it's weird because you you wonder, you know, how much could they have changed in one year? It's not like they went out and recruited a bunch of 320 pound linemen, you know, or, you know, you can have an offseason weight program. Um, but really, they just they've they've just been been better up front. And, and I think the other thing, too, is they're, they're not just they're they're not just physical up front but their the defensive line is quick off the ball and uh, that, that's what gave Randolph making a lot of trouble back in that opener and uh, they they've they've been been good you know not always happy giving up 35 points defensively but um, when you can come up with big plays in the clutch like uh, like Hopkins did with the fumble return uh, you know that always bodes well um, let's stick in this part of the country for a little while. Um, you know, we've talked about Rowan the last couple of weeks, and Cortland State has just been kind of, you know, sitting back there in the shadows, kind of, you know, biding its time, uh, continuing to roll off wins after losing to Buffalo State in the first week of the season. Uh, and they uh, and they come back and score a late touchdown to beat Rowan on Saturday, 24-21. That's one of those rivalries, too, where you put it in the group with, um, you know, the competitive rivalries. Right. It's not quite about. at the level of 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 you know we talk, we'll talk about Mary Harden Baylor and Harden Simmons, which is a, a a highly competitive rivalry and also a kind of a regional rivalry. Cortland State and Rowan, you know, pretty far from each other, but they're always hanging around the top of the end jack, and so it be, it's become one of those games over the past you know six or eight years where uh, it, it comes down to the, the last possession sometimes, and uh, the the thing that was you know really in focus on Saturday with that game is we just hadn't been able to make any sense out of the end Jack this season because uh, Montclair State and Kane started off slowly. Brockport State started off quickly. Rowan had a, you know, had some big games and then had kind of a confusing game against uh, Western Connecticut. Cortland got blown out by ex end Jack member uh, Buff State. And so we didn't know which team was really going to be, be uh, good out of the end Jack, but Cortland's been great, really, since that loss. The offense ha- has uh, has carried them in a lot of games. You know, they put up big numbers against some of the the bad teams, of course, in the conference. But those big numbers continued against TCNJ, against Brockport State, and uh, they didn't really have big numbers on Saturday against Rowan, but they came through when they needed to. Cortland could actually clinch the automatic bid out of the NJAC next week. Uh, they've already beaten Rowan, who's a game behind them, and they face Kane. Kane and Cortland are the uh, are are both unbeaten at the top of the conference. And because Cortland ends the season with the Cortica Jug against Ithaca, a game that's a non-conference game, Cortland has just the two conference games left. They win one of them, and then you know they'll have the tiebreaker against the other two. It doesn't really matter what happens there. They could be, uh, they could be, I think, mathematically, the first team to clinch an automatic bid this season. Obviously, nobody has so far. They play at 1 o'clock on Saturday at Kane. Obviously, Kane, we talked about them already. That's a bit of a test, and uh, Kane had to had to rally with a big fourth quarter to win at TCNJ on Saturday. Yeah, and, and you know, Cortland rallied this one because uh, Rowan actually went up 21-17 with a minute 52 left, had a, you know, a short slant, turned into a 76-yard touchdown, and then um, Chris Rose led the, the game-winning drive. They hit a 33-yard touchdown pass to a freshman, uh, DJ Spencer, with a minute 26 left. So it did, that, that game-winning drive didn't take all that long, uh, you know, about 30 seconds to uh, to get that game touchdown and it's it's got to be frustrating for for Rowan you know you keep this great Cortland State offense um, for the most part off the board held them to 17 points and uh, and then they come through with a quick uh, you know 30 second touchdown drive in uh, to to win the game the three plays 63 yards in 21 seconds was the, was the drive uh, and, and yeah and then Kane you know playing for its conference life and, and that's another team that started off slowly. With the home loss to Albright, and then went to to, uh, to Texas to play Mary Harden Baylor and got blown out, and uh, it's sort of a recurring theme in, in Division Three for teams that we we like when they schedule tough early in the season, and uh, sometimes they struggle with that. You know, sometimes you get a big victory and it sort of propels your program onto greater heights, and that's been the case with Kane before. When Kane has beat beat Wesley last year, that was the eye opener for them. This year. 
the, the non-conference part didn't go so well, but they were able to come back uh, to the NJAC games and, uh, and, and, you know, sort of buckle down and get focused. And now they're, they're 5-0 and and playing Cortland next week uh, for, for a chance at the, uh, you know, the automatic bid. Next on the recurring theme of recurring themes, we have a couple of recurring themes that uh, collided in the Widener and Lycoming game. One of them, Widener with the fourth quarter comeback, and the other one, of course, is just yet another uh, classic in this rivalry between these two teams in the MAC. Yeah, I think that's got to be the best rivalry that is not a traditional trophy game rivalry or last week of the season rivalry. It's just a, a game. Uh, it was Widener and Lycoming we're talking about. It's a game every season that has some kind of crazy finish, and the teams always play each other close. Uh, there's a lot of those across the country. You know, Pat, your, your alma mater and mine were involved in one, uh, you know, for, for a few years. I, don't, I, don't, I think it's tailed off a little bit. but yeah, for a, I'd have to one, admit that. It was one of those ones where it didn't matter if they were playing for the conference title or they were sort of just in the middle of the conference. They always played a, a game for the ages. You know, and then when you have, you know, six games for the ages in a row, I don't know if which one is really counts for the ages. But every single one of these Widener Lycoming games seems to be, uh, you know, one for the ages. And it was no different on Saturday when, when Widener put together a, uh, a, a you know, game-winning touchdown drive. And so, you know, we've talked about, the uh, we talked about in the triple take on Friday what the uh, what the MAC title situation looks like and I uh, I misspoke so I'm going to try to take an opportunity to correct it here um, especially now that we have one more game under our belts it's a little easier to uh, describe let's say well here's where we stand Widener is six and zero in the conference at the top of the conference undefeated um, they've already beaten Lyco now they have Delaware Valley left at the end of the season and obviously. You know, Widener has to play Albright on Saturday. Uh, they also have to go to FTU Forum in a couple of weeks, uh, and then they finish with Delaware Valley. But let's say Widener and Delval both went out, and this becomes uh, a uh, this becomes a not quite a winner take all game. Here's what has to happen: Widener has to win the game or lose by fewer than 17 points uh, because of the because uh, of the MAC tiebreaker, the three-way tiebreaker, and they would be the automatic bid out of the uh, MAC. Delaware Valley. Not only has to beat Widener, they have to beat them by 17 or more. I think it actually has to be 18, but we'll know more. Uh, we'll, we'll clarify that in the next couple of weeks because I'm sure if they tie at 17, then there's another level of tiebreaker that we'd have to go through. But that's the point. That's what's, uh, that's what's going on there in Delaware Valley, of course, as we mentioned before, which started the season with a couple of tough losses. Uh, still has control of its own destiny. It just has to win by a bunch. Well, yeah, and, and also... Um Lycoming has to stay in there as the third tiebreaker team. Sometimes, you know, you have That's a true. three tiebreaker set up and then one team loses and it messes it up for uh for the for the team that's coming from behind, which in this case is Delval. Lost that very early season game to to Lycoming uh 24-14, I believe was a score. And so, you know, their their whole season now has been pointed toward winning the rest of these games and then beat Widener in week 11. And, and you know, we're, we're, all our dreams still come true, even though we lost the first two games. And, and uh, occasionally that dream begins to come true and then gets derailed by something they don't have any control over. Well, and here, and Lyco finishes the season at Wilkes, then home to Stevenson and Misericordia, two teams which have combined for uh, about three total seasons of football at this point. Right. And, and I, I was going to say that, that Lycoming had, had, gotten most of the you know the bulk of its uh its tough games out of the way but widener and delval still have each other you mentioned widener also has has albright you know it didn't look like it was going to have to come down to that at, at one point on uh in the fourth quarter on saturday lyco uh takes a 23 14 lead uh with a parker showers touchdown run i love that name by the way and uh Gets the 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 kick blocked, but is holding a nine point lead in the fourth quarter, not unlike um, Illinois Wesleyan was. And then uh, Widener puts together, you know, this epic thirteen play, ninety four yard touchdown drive to get it to twenty one twenty three, and gets the ball back and puts together another drive, uh, eight plays, seventy eight yards in a minute nine, and scores with seventeen seconds left. And so Widener, uh, you know, gets to write a new chapter in this rivalry in a game that. That would have put Lyco in control of the MAC. Yep, uh, Lyco went uh, on third down and seven at its uh, at its own 42-yard line. Went for the pass to try to get the first down that would have uh, that would have sealed the deal. Instead, 
it goes incomplete. They have to punt it away, and Widener has just enough time to work with, as I mentioned, the uh, the the winning touchdown coming with 17 seconds left. And, uh, and okay, quick, and then we got to get to that other Friday night game we teased 15 minutes ago. I, I we should mention though that Widener had uh, seven turnovers in that game and was still able to pull out the victory. Indeed. Uh, so also on Friday night. Uh, Salve Regina loses to MIT, and of all the games that we thought Salve Regina might lose in the course of this season and in the course of playing in the NEFC, I, I can't say that MIT was ever on my mind. And I, you know, I, I talked to, I, I, I talked to, in the course of uh, putting together kickoff this year. I talked to Chad Martinovich, the head coach at MIT, wrote up their season preview, and he was telling me about how young they were and how you know so many of their positions were uh, were unsettled. And yet, you know, they come out, uh, they come away with, uh, you know, maybe not a spoiler in the sense of, uh, you know, keeping Salve from reaching the conference title because they're still comfortably ahead in their uh, race for getting into the conference championship game. But they spoiled any shot of them getting into the into D3Football.com top 25 anyway, and of them getting a, a high enough seed that they might qualify for a home game, I would think, in the playoffs. Yeah, it, it's certainly a little surprising. MIT... I had noticed them on the come up a little bit, but they still were only beating teams of quality of Becker. Their wins were against Mass Dartmouth and Plymouth State, which is not the worst thing in the world. But uh, you know, they lost to Coast Guard, they lost at Curry, and uh, and they lost at Western New England. You know, they really even ha- hadn't even played the the best teams in, in the NFC yet this season. Um, and and the, the challenge against Salve, you know, was was by far MIT's biggest of the season. And you figure, um, you know, that's. That's not one that they you think they're going to win, but if they finish out the season maybe by by beating Nichols, they get to four wins this season, and it's something MIT could build on going forward. Chad Martinovich, being a, uh, a head coach who who uh, is a Hobart grad and came from RPI, so he knows you know you got to recruit certain kind of kids to get into these high academically elite engineering schools, and he's familiar with that from RPI coming over to MIT, which, you know, casts its recruiting net across the country, but they they can't, you got to get a, a, a certain kind of player, you know, a guy who's a, who's going to be interested in advanced mathematics or whatever it is, as well as uh, doing pretty well in football. And so it, it's hard to, to win there. And this, uh, Result on Friday was was really a, uh, a a shock. It was the last home game of the season. It was a Friday night game, and you kind of you have to believe that Salve, after winning 13 in a row and and, and craving top 25 recognition and and starting to think maybe toward the playoffs, that they maybe just overlooked this one a little bit and and it came back to bite them. Keith talked about uh, higher mathematics or whatever it is, and the you know uh, us two journalists from liberal arts liberal liberal arts colleges. Yeah, that's what it is to us. It's whatever it is. So uh, whatever it is you guys do there, keep on doing it. Also, it has been a, a fantastic week uh, for MIT in terms of the D3Sports.com world because they were named uh, the number one team in the country in the men's basketball preseason poll on D3Hoops.com, and they are currently on the front page of both sites. So congratulations to the engineers. Um, let's talk about a couple of teams that are not in playoff contention but got some uh, got some big monkeys off their backs. You know, talking about both Wilmington and Earlham, who had long, multiple season losing streaks. And for I think Wilmington especially, uh, you know, with a with a coaching change mid season and playing in you know one of the top uh, one of the top two conferences in Division Three football, it was really not looking good that it was gonna uh, that that streak was gonna end before another off season. And, and that's what you want when you make that coach and change midseason. A guy who's just going to get the guys to to play hard and and get everything organized and and uh, get the guys to buy into something, so that when you go, you know, you start building towards next season, you can maybe get the monkey off your back. And and uh, not not to say that they were mailing in the rest of the season's games, but it certainly it just didn't look good. You know, I watched a portion of Wilmington playing against Baldwin Wallace on Sports Time Ohio, and. Baldwin Wallace, you know, was was scoring easily, like running through the defense. Guys, um, you know, the the effort really wasn't there necessarily. Trying to tackle them and uh, uh, bad offensive, you know, they make a great play on offense, then the guy would fumble it away the next play, and it was just it, it was bad football. And uh, for Wilmington, 
even if you don't have the most talented guys, and certainly, you know, they're they're not getting top pick of, of players in Ohio after Mountain Union goes through and takes their share and Ohio Northern and Baldwin Wallace and John Carroll and everybody takes all their players, then a couple guys go to Wilmington. But even if you're, you know, you're you're physically you don't match up, you just want to play solid football. And and finally, Wilmington uh, played a game in which it, it it was it was a clean a cleaner game for them and uh they they it was a really big a uh, big lift for that program obviously not just to get the monkey off the back but in the in the uh the way they did it they drove 57 yards uh on eight plays in the final uh in a minute 20 and kicked a field goal and we could feel the you know, we started watching a little bit on twitter we're like okay halftime this is a good game it's 12-10 and then watching it um happen and and then you really saw the energy come out um for you know over twitter it was exciting you know and, and people not even associated with the program were, were congratulating wilmington because it's rough it's got to be rough to you know lose three seasons worth of games in a row and uh earlham was he was the other group of quakers that was getting pretty close to that that three season mark as well i want to before we go on to earlham i want to talk about the the way that wilmington won you mentioned the uh 57 yards culminating in a field goal. I have to, you know, remind people that, you know, for, for schools that are at the bottom of Division Three, a 35-yard field goal is no gimme. In fact, there are a lot of a lot of programs in Division Three that you really couldn't even line up to, you know, to credibly attempt a 35-yard field goal. That's a good point. You're right. It, you know, that that's like the equivalent of, you know, 47, 48, 40, you know, 50 yards in the NFL, you know, because – um, but the, there's there's not there's just not that many great kickers to go around, and so there are some programs that are using a defensive lineman or a, or a guy who's the backup quarterback or a backup wide receiver to kick, especially in a program where you don't have that many guys, uh, or or you have a you know a brand new guy, a freshman, and uh, you know drilling that field goal. You're right, it, it's no gimme, and it was it was a big deal I think for the Wilmington program when you you know look big picture new coach something to build on next week and uh you know the OAC does have its share this season of 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 not good teams it's a very have have not league you got five good teams five not so good teams and Marietta certainly is uh, is not so good but you still don't expect them to uh to lose a game to Wilmington so on the other side uh Earlham in its first year under head coach Neil Kazmierzak comes in, uh, comes in and and puts up a victory that you know again in a in a in a different situation in a league that you know that has not been very good that's that's kind of struggled still they had been through the season and they had uh, you know not been in a situation where they had uh, been particularly close you know they they lost to Kenyon by uh, by three scores they were they only lost to Bluffton by eight that that game was uh, you know back in week three and and. You know, if if Earlham doesn't get this game, you know they finish with Hanover, who's the second best team in the league, and then Mount St. Joseph, who's around 500, and and Rose Holman, who's kind of struggling at two and five. But they didn't really have another necessarily uh, a game that you could point to and say, yeah, we could definitely win that one. And I think it's just you know again, big picture stuff. It's you know. Given given your your program something to rally around and, and and be excited about, especially when you have a you know brand new coach in there, Earlham had lost uh, twenty six games in a row, and uh, that's just it, it's it's a tough burden to carry, and it gets tougher each you know the longer it goes, and uh, just just having the the joy of winning sometimes you know. You go to practice. I'm sure the next Monday, and it's just a much more livelier practice because you, 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 it's, it's what everybody works for. You, 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 you want to taste that victory, and so Earlham got that 26 game losing streak off their back. Wilmington, it was 32 games, and all these, uh, you know, when you lose that many games in a row, you, that means you also haven't won, you know, in front of your home crowd. You haven't won a conference game in a while, and so uh, you know to get those 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 monkeys. Uh, off the back to snap not just the overall losing streak but all the little losing streaks that go with it it is a big deal for a program that's you know starting off under a new coach bunch of other games on saturday and we're coming up in the hour mark so we're going to have to skip through a whole bunch of them but i wanted to talk of course we can't uh, ignore that larry karras passed bear bryant with his 324th uh, career victory as the purple raiders of mountain union defeated otterbein by a score of 51 nothing you know i'm just going to throw out here that's not the that's not the first person that Larry Karras has passed over the course of the past year, but uh, you know he also passed Joe Paterno, but that's because uh, Paterno had, uh, obviously, all those wins taken away. This is a, uh, a, a guy, though, who is moving up uh, the ladder 
against some pretty pretty significant names in the history of college football. Yeah, and and these are also the the winning percentage leader by far. You know, guy who's won about ninety two percent of his games. I don't have the stat in front of me, but I think it's something like that. Um, you know, a team who's just remarkably, remarkably consistent. You know, we take Whitewater for example, a team that had gone on a nice stretch, really one of the great stretches in history. Seven time finalist, uh, hadn't lost a conference game. Um, since 2008, you know, finally uh, had bad, you know, some, some, you know, somebody came and beat them when Buff State did it back in week, week two, and then uh, finally lost the conference game. You know, somebody else rises up eventually. All things change. All things cycle through. You know, except Mountain Union, they they just never have that off season. And even we look at them with such a, a kind of a critical eye. We're looking for minuscule differences, like. Their quarterback is not outstanding this year. He's only okay. Or they're, you know, they don't have a star running back. I mean, seriously, these are the things that we say about Mountain Union because everything else about them is so consistent. And this year, um, you know, they've now tied their own record for consecutive shutouts. They had a great stretch, a great defense in 2007, and, and they had six shutouts. I, I don't know if they were consecutive in 2007, but this season they're consecutive. And you have to go back to week one fourth quarter when Franklin put together a little drive on them and threw a 30-yard touchdown pass to uh, to find the only time somebody scored on them this season and we could you know throw out some of the you know the the blowouts the shutouts cuz well, you're like okay you know Muskingum's not that great Wilmington's not that great but this is you know Otterbein team that's coming in 5 and 1 has a legitimate division 3 star on its team in, in Trey Fairchild the wide receiver and um they couldn't put up a point yeah, well, uh, and I think you pretty much said it all right there. Uh, 324, 24, and 3. That is the career mark for uh, Larry Karras. So that's just a winning percentage of only 927. Uh, as a guy who, you know, his, uh, it is 27th season uh, as the head coach, and he's lost only 24 games. That's the stat that I keep looking at, is a guy who has fewer losses than seasons as a head coach. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, just something that's really hard for – people to uh to kind of wrap their brain around um yeah we kind of need to move forward to next week at this point and to be honest with you you know we've we've spent uh so much time over you know what the what the kind of great week we had uh this week was i mean we didn't even really talk about mary harden baylor and harden simmons but you can see uh chad's ha chad hammond's d3 report uh down at the bottom of the page that'll give you a, a feeling of what that game was like and then some of the other games we have going on uh we have uh, we, have, well, we have the Heidelberg-Mountain Union game, a, a game that we've been waiting uh, for uh, for several weeks now since uh, Heidelberg uh, gave notice that they were going to be pretty good this year. Uh, Willamette goes to Linfield. Uh, St. Thomas hosts Augsburg. Uh, Wesley goes to Huntington. The Wesley barnstorming, uh, barnstorming tour continues, Keith. Yeah, it makes one more stop uh, in Division Three, And uh, that was probably... It probably is a, a game for the Pool B bid, given that uh, Carnegie Mellon lost to Ohio Wesleyan on Saturday. And uh, and Birmingham Southern kind of played its way out of it, uh, too, over the last couple weeks. Uh, Illinois Wesleyan North Central, we mentioned uh, we mentioned that earlier. Uh, Hobart hosts Union. We mentioned the Widener-Albright game. How about Wabash and Ohio Wesleyan? Ohio Wesleyan, if they can call them a stealth unbeaten team or not, but they're a team that's uh, that, – team that's seven and zero, and the best team that they've played is Carnegie Mellon who they just beat this past week yeah well in the same vein as Ohio Wesleyan as maybe Waynesburg and 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 maybe Salve we were holding off on the accolades for them because they hadn't beaten they just hadn't played strong teams yet and you know for for Mountain Union you can make an exception because they weren't even giving up any points but um Ohio Wesleyan hadn't got to the, the the meat of its schedule and, and now that meat is here and, and they you know they earn their respect I think with the with the win over Carnegie Mellon and if they beat Wabash then all of a sudden we're, we're going to be talking about them is uh Ohio Wesleyan would then finish with Allegheny and Worcester and they do not play Wittenberg who's one of the other uh, contenders obviously in the North Coast Athletic Conference uh we have uh Johns Hopkins going to Ursinus we have uh, I mentioned the Albright Widener game I'm pretty sure we have uh, and we have Warburg uh, 
traveling to Co. And Co. is another one of those unbeaten teams that we are just going to jam into the last five minutes of this podcast here. You know, I, I, I um, checked in on that game for about five seconds because Co. was crushing Simpson and they ended up winning that game 47-7. But I, I did think about putting them in the, in the category of teams who hadn't played somebody great yet and therefore that, that's why we hadn't, uh, they haven't gotten the top 25 recognition. Co. I, I think resounding in it in its statement uh, against Simpson on on Saturday, and they're in uh, they're in pretty good shape at this point. Yeah, Kof, uh, host Wartburg goes to Luther, home to Central. That's the last three weeks of the season for them. Their uh, non-conference games were against uh, longtime rival Cornell, who uh, left the Iowa Conference this year, uh, against Monmouth, and against uh, WashU. And we mentioned WashU's record earlier. Anybody remember? Yes, that was two and five. Thanks. Thanks for playing. And uh, that is the uh, Around the Nation podcast, sponsored by the City of Salem. Uh, tickets for Stag Bowl 40 are on sale now. Go to www.salemciviccenter.com to uh, get your game tickets and information about accommodations and everything else in the lovely Roanoke Valley and the City of Salem, Virginia. And don't forget to stick around for the rest of what comes this week from d3football.com. This is your podcast. This is your Monday morning uh, hour and seven minutes and counting. And then uh, this afternoon we'll have the uh, the post-game show. That's what we've been calling the D3 reports and the uh, highlight packages. If you're a school that does a highlight package, puts it on YouTube, uh, you know, it wouldn't hurt to send us a link just to make sure that we include it in that playlist because we want to get everybody in there that does this. Um, on Tuesday we'll do the uh, D3Football.com Play of the Week need your nominations by 5 p.m. Eastern time on Monday so that we can process those uh, and vote on them. And then we have Around the Region columns on Tuesday and Wednesday and Keith's Around the Nation column on Thursday. And Keith, Around the Nation this week will be? The uh, first set of regional rankings for the, uh, for the playoffs. The NCAA decided to scale back from four to two a couple years ago, so they won't be putting out one until uh, uh, 31st of October or, uh, or beginning of November, and uh, that's where we step in. Yep, so we will be the committee. We will take the criteria. We'll run it all down, and we'll give you our idea of where we think the uh, NCA would rank uh, regional uh, teams regionally coming into the season or coming into the week, and I'm going to re-record that. Probably not. That's your Around the Nation podcast for the week of October 22nd, 2012. All right. Good work, Pat. <laughs> I, I, I watched a 